Well, if you've been with us for the past several weeks, what we've been looking at is the prayers of Paul. And one of the reasons why we've been looking at the prayers of Paul is because we want to grow in prayer. Let's, and let's face it, prayer is probably one of the hardest things that you can ever do, that we can ever do as Christians. We can preach, we can speak in front of people, we can have conversations, we can go into public places, and we can have conversations with other people. But when the Lord calls us into His presence, we admit that our minds wander off, and we think about the blinds and how we need to fix the blinds, or we think about the bills that we need to pay, or we think about the person down the street making all that noise, and we think about the lawnmower, and everything else comes into our mind, and next thing you know, we're up shouting at our neighbors and saying, please turn it down, I'm trying to pray. And then we never get to it. So, when we look at the prayers of Paul, one of the things that we are looking at is Paul's specific prayers and we are learning by his example how to come before the lord and pray for one another and so what we saw last week is we were at in the city of thessalonica a very prominent city and we were looking at paul's affection his 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 attention to the thessalonians he was only there for three weeks but he loved them and one of the questions that we asked is would you lay your life down for a christian that you just met three weeks ago Well, Paul was willing to do that. Paul was so willing to do that that his emotions were all over his sleeves as he shared what he felt. He nurtured them as a mother. He exhorted them as a father. And so one of the things that we see is the affections of Paul. And ultimately, we see a little glimpse into the heart of our Savior who loves us even more than Paul can ever love the Thessalonians. But now we transition. We go from one of Paul's earliest letters now to the city of Ephesus. This is a letter that was written on his third missionary journey. So by this point in time, Paul has traveled around the known world. He's been on several missionary journeys. He's been kicked out of some cities. And at this point in time, Paul is now making his way into the city of Ephesus. There's a remarkable difference between the way in which one with no background in the occult, and I said the occult, the occult, uh, would read this letter versus someone who grew up immersed in that. When we come to the letter written to the Ephesians, Paul has by this point, as I said, traveled the known world. He's made disciples. He's encouraged believers. He's established church leaders in different places. But he is not going to these churches in order to be on an extended vacation. He's not going to Thessalonica and to Philippi and to Ephesus in order to sightsee. Paul is not going to these places for those reasons, but he has a specific mission in mind. And as we look at the life of Paul, we look, we get, again, we get a glimpse into the character of our Savior who set his face to go to Jerusalem to die on behalf of our sins. And so what would drive a man like Paul to go through great lengths in order to make Christ known? The answer is, he himself has been known by the Lord. It is he who has been saved as the chief of sinners. He understands who he is before a holy God. The Lord has struck him down on the way to Damascus and revealed himself to him. And now Paul will live for no one or anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do I begin this way? The reason why I begin this way as we go through the letter to the Ephesians is because this is all set up. 
I'm not trying to set you up. I'm trying to set the context of what we're going through. This is all set up because we're going to get to his prayer actually next week, looking at verses 17 through 19. But this week, I, as, I was, I was, I was, as I was going through this, I was thinking we really need to understand what the context of Paul's prayers are. When you look at the prayers of John Knox, when you look at the prayers of Elijah or David or anyone that, that we call brother and sister whom the Lord has saved, always remember that there is a context behind those prayers. They don't pray in a vacuum. They don't just decide one day to leave work and say, I think I'm just going to write down a simple prayer and hopefully market it through the Hallmark Channel. And maybe someone will pick it up and read it for their 25th birthday or something like that. Paul doesn't do that. And so we shouldn't do this. We shouldn't do that as well. We must take prayer seriously. And so this sermon specifically today is so that we would have a framework, a context for our prayers. And so by doing that, I want to give you the context of what is actually happening in the city of Ephesus when Paul gets there. Paul travels to the city of Ephesus as a divine emissary. He's an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Lord has specially chosen him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Remember, he is a Jew, born into a Jewish culture. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, probably a member of what was called the Sanhedrin, which is a council of 70 men who were married with children, who were in charge of governing the the, the people of Israel. And he left all of that life behind because the Lord stopped him dead in his tracks and called him to himself and said, I will send you to the Gentiles. He was personally invested in the life of the Lord's church, not because he was a lonely man looking for friends or a guilty man looking to repay those families he ripped apart or a fearful man trying to gain the acceptance from Christians or an unemployed man trying to find something to do with his hands or even a religious man trying to convert people to a religion. He knew Christ. And he knew who he was. He knew who he is. He knows the God of history. And it's to this God he is calling all people from every tribe, nation, and tongue as he goes from city to city to city to city. He understands, and this is the underlying assumption for Paul. And we're really getting into what makes Paul tick. And as you're listening to this, I want you to think and consider your own prayer life. What makes you tick as you come before the Lord in prayer? What drives you to pray? Is there a context behind your prayers or do you just shoot them off like arrows hoping that they'll make it to its target? The underlying assumption that Paul had was that there is a God and Father. That there is a Lord Jesus Christ. Even though the people in Ephesus and in Rome said that there is a Lord Caesar... Paul believed that there is a king of kings and a lord of lords who governs all of the kingdoms of this world. And he is the promised Messiah, and he is God who saves his people from their sins. Paul believed that there is a Holy Spirit who seals those whom Christ has purchased with his blood. So Paul believes in a triune God, and so do we. We believe that the whole Godhead is at work in our salvation, so that you say salvation belongs to the Lord. And so in Paul, what we see is that the Lord has not only done something dramatic to him, but is now working dramatically through him. So we get to Ephesus. 
Ephesus, just like Thessalonica, great city. Again, you, this is not Paul's best traveler's blog or list. Paul is traveling to a great city. And notice how the Lord works through Paul. Paul is used by the Lord to go to major centers where people from every tribe and nation are gathering together, and he uses Paul to establish churches. It was a major coastal city in modern-day Turkey, and it was known to house one of the wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis, or the other name is Diana. And so Ephesus was considered the temple guardian, the city guardian of Diana or Artemis. And what we see in Acts chapter 19, Luke records for us, actually, we have a lot of context for what's going on in Ephesus. Luke records for us that Paul goes into this city and this city is steeped in the occult. This is why I began by saying there was a remarkable difference in the way someone who's reading this letter today, even, who grew up in the occult and someone who didn't grow up in the occult. Paul is encountering people who are deeply invested in the life of the occult. So, so witchcraft, spells, charms, this is all part of everyday life for the people at Ephesus. In other words, if you were to go to Ephesus during those times and you went into someone's house, it would be normal for them to sacrifice to a god. It would be normal for them to talk about casting spells or being involved in what we call today seances. It would be normal for them. This was normal life for everyone in Ephesus. And the Ephesian people were very proud of this. They were proud of this. Now, it's very different from today because today you talk to someone and they say, well, I'm not really religious. In fact, I was just talking to someone last week at Starbucks and they said, I'm not really a religious person. And I'm thinking, yeah, everyone is. Everyone is religious to some degree or another. But we as Americans, we compartmentalize God and the whole spiritual realm with everything else. We leave off the whole spiritual realm for just Sundays. We relegate it for Sundays or you know, whatever part of the uh, culture we're in. And we have everyday life, Monday through Saturday. But this is not the case in Ephesus. If you were considered an atheist, this was a blemish on your character. This is why the early Christians were charged with being atheists, because they chose not to believe and they didn't believe in the gods of the day. So they say, you're an atheist. You don't believe in our gods. These guys don't want to participate. They don't want to be part of everyday society. They're atheists. And the Christians said, no, we just believe in one true God. So Paul's visit in Acts 19, takes place on his third missionary journey. This is in the mid-50s AD. There's a lot going on in Rome and in Ephesus. There is a Jewish stronghold in Ephesus. So a, a, a nice little contingent of Jewish people. And what does Paul do? Well, Acts 19, again, Luke tells us that he does the same thing that he always does in every city. He goes into the synagogue. And this should give us a clue when we're sharing the gospel with our friends and family, when we're talking about the Lord, who is deeply part of our lives, with other people. For Paul, his norm was to go into the synagogue. We may not just go into a synagogue today, but there are places that we normally go to. And every time that we go there, we know that there are people who don't love the Lord. So the category that has to be built into our mind is that the Lord has to be Lord over all of our lives so that when we get to those places, we can start by saying, this is the Lord who I love. This is the Lord who I believe in. 
And so this is what Paul does. From here, he gets resistance from Jewish people, his countrymen, and then he withdraws to a place called the Hall of Tyrannus. And this is not a withdrawal, like we, we, Pastor Shishko says, we, don't, we never withdraw. You know, we're never trying to run away from something. But he goes to a more opportune place, the Hall of Tyrannus. And typically, that's where people go to hear lectures. And some people didn't want to even go to hear lectures in the middle of the day. But Paul took full advantage of this. And this is where he taught for about two years. What Luke writes for us in Acts chapter 19, verses, uh, verse 10, is that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Look at how effective the preaching of the gospel was for Paul. Again, this is all background. This is all set up for what we get to in his prayer in verses 15 through 19. But what is it that serves to underpin the letter to the Ephesians? Why did I begin with talking about the occult and this magnificent city? Because whenever you deal with people who are involved in the occult, whether it's in Uganda or it's in Spanish Harlem or it's in Miami, wherever the case is, Whenever you're dealing with people that are in the occult, they understand that there is something beyond this life that is supernatural, that is a lot more powerful than they are, and they want to be involved somehow in it, even if it scares them. Part of the reason is because they think that they can manipulate that in order to gain power and control over other people. This is where we get the idea of spells from. Part of it is because they are hoping that by being engaged with something beyond themselves, they are hoping in, to, to get some sort of prosperity in their lives, some sort of benefit. And ultimately what we see happening as people run to the occult is that they are doing exactly what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. They, are, they know that there is a God out there. They know that the God of all creation is there, but they don't think it's fitting in their minds to have, them, to have him in their thinking. So they push him out. They open the door and they kick God out of their minds, out of their thinking, and they take a substitute. And the substitute is anything or everything that will enable their sin. So when we get to the city of Ephesus and even the letter to the Ephesians, what we're dealing with is power plays. A power play between the God of all creation and all of the other gods that the Ephesians love and are so endeared to, especially Diana. When we get to the letter of to the Ephesians, we get a glimpse of God's power. We are confronted both with God's raw power in destroying arguments and all of the things that would exalt themselves against the knowledge of the Lord. And we see that because he saved them. And we get a glimpse into the sustaining power of God as he sustains them. If you notice, the book of Ephesians is divided into two categories. You have the heavily doctrinal section from chapters 1 to 3 and then the practical section. Everyone runs to the practical section. They're looking, how, they're looking at how to engage in spiritual warfare in chapter 6. They're looking at how husbands should be treating their wives and they do marriage conferences from chapter 5. But they all ignore chapters 1 through 3 which is the, all about what God has done in the life of His church. 
And so we get a glimpse of his raw power. We get a glimpse of his sustaining power. And this is exactly what the people of God have always sung about in the history of God's people. First Chronicles 16, verses 25 through 27. David sings, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and joy are in his place. This is Ephesus, a place that is deeply invested in idolatry, in the occult, in magic, and in witchcraft. But then you get the lifestyle Beyond that, the people of Ephesus, again, are coming out of the occult. If you have your Bibles, turn with, with me to Acts chapter 19, verses 18 through 20. I want, you, I want you to see this with your own eyes so that you know that I'm not making things up. But in Acts chapter 19, Luke writes for us what was going on in Ephesus. Verses 18 through 20. This comes on the heels of seven sons of a Jewish high priest or a priest who decided to make a ministry or a business out of casting out demons. This is how prominent and how regular this was. They ask or they tell the demon to come out of a man by the name Jesus whom Paul preaches. And the horror of horrors, the demon turns around and says, Jesus, I know. Paul, I've heard of. But who are you? And then proceeds, this demon-possessed man proceeds to go ahead and attack these seven men, leaving them naked and ashamed. And everybody heard this. And so when we get down to verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus. Imagine, word travels fast and there is no internet. Both Jews and Greeks and Fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, and this is where I want you to see and zero in on, because this gives you a glimpse into their lifestyle. Also, many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, that means nothing to you right now. But imagine, 50,000 pieces of silver is equivalent to probably about $6 million. So, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now, you've heard it said by people who are financial gurus that they can tell what your priorities are by just looking at your bank account. For these people, we can tell what their priorities are by looking at what they spent their money on. Six million dollars, 50,000 pieces of silver on the occult. So this wasn't just a practice for them in their lifestyle that was just, I'll add it on on Sunday or I'll add it on on a Tuesday night or whatever. This was every single conversation. You go to their dinner table and you don't, you don't talk about politics, but you talk about religion. And this was what life looked like. Six million dollars worth of books on magic suggests that this was not a trivial hobby. Mm. And so in Ephesus, these people made deals with the devil. This is what their normal life looked like. And they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. So if we look at Ephesus, we look at their lifestyle. What's the providence of God? 
doing in Ephesus? What does that look like? Well, in the Lord's providence, he sends them the apostle to the Gentiles. This man should have had nothing to do with the occult. In fact, this was banned under Jewish law, according to the law of Moses. You are not allowed to do any sort of divination practices. You are not allowed to engage in soothsaying or any kinds of wicked things like this. These are why the nations around you are being destroyed, is what the Lord says. And so you are not allowed to do this. This is why when Saul goes to the witch at Endor to get some clarity about what to do with Israel, Samuel comes up and says, what are you doing? <laughs> you're, you're, you're disobeying the Lord. So the, the sentence for practicing these things under Jewish law was death. You don't do these things. You don't do that. Because in doing that, what you're saying is that the voice of demons is greater than the voice of the creator. Mm. But in the Lord's providence, he sends to them a man who would share the gospel with them. To those who sat in deep darkness and they would see the light of the gospel so that they would know the magnitude of the power of God over and above every heavyweight principality that they have engaged. Hmm. The deep engagement and involvement with the occult, the devil and demonic activity was as familiar and tangible to these people as bread on their table. Hmm. And so, do you think Paul went into that city a little nervous? Mm. (laughs) Well... He could have, but knowing the character of Paul, knowing how determined Paul was, he probably went in with the song of Moses. So let me read to you what Moses writes after the Lord demolishes the entire country of Egypt. He says in chapter 15 of Exodus, the Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Verse 11 in chapter 15. (laughs) Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? When the Lord steps into the city of Ephesus, the gods come down. The gods are destroyed. The hold that Satan has on the people at Ephesus is slowly destroyed to the shame and the horror of Satan and every principality there. And what the Lord does in his providence is he reverses some things for the life of the Ephesians. So, number one, he reverses gender roles. In the city of Ephesus, they had as their preeminent leader... Diana. But now the headship and masculinity of Christ is established here in the lives of people. Number two, the recognition of eternal and unprecedented power in the work of the triune God is seen so that they understand that it is by the Lord's appointment that people are coming to life before the foundations of the world. With Diana, they had no guarantee. In the work of Christ the Son, there is full and complete redemption and the forgiveness of sins so that whatever breach of relationship there was between creator and creation was repaired through the finished work of Christ. With Diana, they have no guarantee. Therefore, they're continuing to come to the temple and sacrificing for their children. This is why we see between chapters 1 and 3 about 27 times the words, 
in Christ or in him because they have been so united to Christ that they don't have anything to do with the idols that they were engaged in at one point. And then the work of the Spirit. Believers are both sealed and guaranteed their eternal inheritance, having been united to Christ and now being powerfully worked through in order to establish unity and a deeply dispositional culture of holiness and blamelessness within the church that spans across all bloodlines, every economic uh, class and societal class in families amongst the life of the church. What you have here is something that never existed in the temple of Diana. Mm. This is so different. So what does that warfare then look like? Again, we're not running to Ephesians chapter 6. A lot of people do conferences on spiritual warfare and just go to chapter 6, but they skip out on the great and wonderful works of the Lord in chapters 1 through 3. So let me tell you what the warfare looks like. This is what Paul sees as the Lord's works, his works of power. In chapter 1, we see that it is the Lord who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, not Diana. It is the Lord who has chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the earth, not Diana. And I'm not talking about Diana in the congregation. I'm talking about Diana the goddess. So I don't want anyone to get tripped up on that. It is the Lord who has destined us to be holy and blameless in Christ. There were no guarantees with that with Diana. It is the Lord who has adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ, not Diana. It is the Lord who has blessed us in the beloved Lord Jesus, not Diana. Mm -hmm. It is the Lord who has lavished his grace upon us, not because of anything we could do, but because of his wisdom and understanding, not Diana. It was the Lord, or it is the Lord, who has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, not Diana or any other God. It is the Lord who gives us an inheritance, not Diana or any other God, because he predestined us. It is the Lord who works all things according to the counsel of his will, not the will of Diana or any other God. It is the Lord who enables us to hope in Christ, not in Diana or any other gods of Ephesus, so that Christ would be glorified, not the temple or the goddess, Diana. It is the Lord who enables us to trust in him for our salvation, not Diana or any other god. It is the Lord who gives us his spirit, not Diana or any other god. And it is the Lord who seals his people, securing them, for their inheritance to the praise and the glory of the Lord, not Diana. Are you getting the point of what's happening here? There's a break. When we come to Christ, there should be a clean break from the practices that we have engaged in all of our lives. It takes a lifetime to build up these habits of sin. Of sin. But when we come to Christ, there is a clean breaking from all of those things. And now we have to learn a new way. And this is why the hearing of God's word is so important. This is why when Paul writes to the Thessalonian Christians, he said that the word of the Lord sounded forth so that all who were in Macedonia heard of what the Lord had been doing in you. The word of God is supreme. 
And it is for these reasons, it is because of their faith in the Lord Jesus, which is what he says in verse 15. He starts off by saying, for this reason. For what reason, Paul? Well, I just gave you all of the reasons. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, which you didn't have at one point, because you were married to a certain degree to Diana, And because of your love toward all the saints, which you didn't have, you loved yourself and you loved what you did in the temple and you loved engaging with temple prostitutes and you loved sacrificing for your children and you loved doing all of these things that the trade guilds do in your time. But now you've turned away from these idols to the living God. And so because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, he says, I do not stop. To give thanks. I do not stop or I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Last week, one of the things that I said and I remarked on is that every time that you look at another believer, you're looking at a miracle. It may not feel like it at some points because of personality issues. and might, That might be the case. We all have indwelling sin and remaining sin. And it takes a lifetime of the work of the Spirit to put on the final touches of God's glory and grace in every one of us. And He will renovate us and He will continue to renovate us, kicking those old habits out and saying, that part of your heart is condemned. This part of your heart needs to be restored. This part of your heart needs to be restored until the entire heart is restored. And you are outfitted for an eternity to be in the presence of a holy God. This is the goal of our sanctification. And so with the people in Ephesus, they understood what power looked like because they grew up in that. But now they have come to an immeasurable power, the power of God. Where do we go from here? There are three spheres of application that we normally look to. When we talk about spiritual warfare, we're looking at the world, the flesh, and the devil. So let me begin by looking at the warfare against the flesh, because this is what the Ephesians had to uh, think about as well. There is a warfare against the Lord and his people on a personal level, which comes and springs out of our hearts. If you ever travel to New York City and you go in downtown Manhattan, you see these huge, uh, big orange and white stacks and you see the smoke rising from the manhole covers and you just walk right through it and you hold your nose. Maybe you have a mask and you're trying to avoid that. This is the way remaining sin works in our hearts. It comes up from the deepest recesses of our soul through the manholes of our hearts so that we are, this this is who we are and this is who the Lord is changing. So old habits die hard until you come at those habits with the power of the Spirit. Mm. And so in Ephesians chapter 1 alone, we see what informs Paul's prayer. This is how he fights against the flesh. He knows the Lord. When you come to the Lord and you understand the power that is at work, and he explains it in chapter 1 verses 19 through 23. But when you understand the power of the Lord that is at work, You go to the Lord and you say, Lord, I am helpless. I cannot fight against this sin on my own. And even if I did, and I did it by my own willpower, you will not get the glory. So we fight against sin by knowing God's word. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 119, I have hidden your heart in my word that I might not sin against you. This is why we need to be in our Bibles. 
Now, the believers in Ephesus didn't have necessarily an ESV's uh, Bible in their hands, but what they had was the word of God from the apostles preached. They had the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writing, and they can see the works of God as God worked in laying the foundation of the church through the apostles and the prophets. And then they had the work of the Spirit in them. So in this personal sphere, you war against the flesh, which resists anything having to do with growing and knowing the Lord. So when you have the energy, when you have the strength, or when you have the desire, you wake up and you say, I, I want to read my Bible today. Oh, I got to pay a bill. You ask the Lord, please, Lord, give me the strength. And then you make a commitment. You make a plan. It's not that you fold your arms and you say, well, Lord, I'm asking for help. I'll just wait till you give me the help. He gave you arms and he gave you legs and he gave you a brain. So we go and make plans to do it. And we do this moment by moment. But what about the devil? We are told by James that we are to submit to God to resist the devil and he will flee from us. And even though all authority in heaven and on earth is under the feet of Christ, the devil is still God's devil and he is on a leash and he knows that his time is short. So what does he do? The work of the devil is to stop the advancement of the gospel even in churches like this one. And this is why we pray for other churches, including our church. We don't just pray for the physical needs. Those are important. But what does Paul pray for? That we would continue to grow in the knowledge of Christ. Because if we're not growing in the knowledge of the Lord, we are growing in the ways of the world. I can guarantee you that. There are no neutral zones when it comes to growing in knowledge. You're either growing in the news feed that you're watching on your phones or you're growing in the knowledge of the Lord. And the devil knows that. So he does whatever it takes to slow down the advancement of the gospel in a community, in the church. And this is why we see Paul constantly getting kicked out because the devil is trying to hinder his way towards the congregations. And this is what he says in 1 Thessalonians, that Satan hindered us. So we pray for our church. Pray for the haven. Look at the seats around you. There's still some empty seats, and that's fine. But we are not asking the Lord to give us numerical growth so much as we are asking that the Lord would pull people out of Comac from the kingdom of darkness and bring them into the kingdom of His Son. This is where the joy comes. You go to work in a place where people don't love the Lord, you see how different their lives are. You know, having worked in retail, I worked in retail for 22 years and realizing that the people that love the Lord and the people who don't love the Lord have a very different set of priorities in their lives. The people in this world love the things that are passing away. They love the cars. They love the sneakers, especially if you're working in retail. Everyone loves sneakers and you have to have really nice sneakers, not old people sneakers is what they'll tell you. But what they'll tell you is that this is their life. But for the life of a believer, you understand that all of these things, like, like Deuteronomy chapter 8 says, all of these things come because the Lord has provided them for you. And it is the Lord who gives us the power to wealth. This doesn't mean that we're going to be wealthy, but this does mean that every single morsel of bread that comes across our table is a gift from the Lord. So, 
We pray for our church and then the world because of the profound connectedness to the world that we have around us through technology. We are confronted on a daily basis with the culture of this world. And I'm not talking about American culture per se. What I am talking about is that the culture of this world is to take the things of the Lord, put them in the trash can, hopefully burn it and get it as far away from us because we want to live our lives. Let me go to Mykonos. Let me go to Ibiza. Let me go to Italy. Let me go to the coast of wherever it is. Let me live my life. Let me be. But those who belong to the Lord say, no, I would rather be one day in the court of the Lord than a thousand anywhere else. And so this is the world that we live in. In this world, there are only two kinds of people, those who are dead and at war with Christ and those who are alive. So if there was ever a time to pray, it's now. The beauty of prayer is that you are invited into communion with God, with the Lord who designed you for himself. The burden of prayer is not necessarily for this country, because countries will come and go. Things and kingdoms will come and go. But the burden of prayer is that you and your brothers and sisters would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This doesn't mean that we don't get involved in local politics in order to try to move things in a way that's going to be pleasing to the Lord. But this does mean that our hope rests not in the politics of our country, but in the Lord whose kingdom never ends. Amen. That's where our desires should land. The urgency of prayer is that we would always pray. Pray without ceasing is what Paul says. Pray without ceasing that we would be eager to carve out times, specific times of prayer for not only ourselves, but coming together such as Wednesday nights. That we would carve those times out. And the wonder of prayer is that God has chosen this to be the means by which he works in our lives and in the life of his people. Just in closing, one of the things that I want to say is prayer is judgment on the world. You realize that? Prayer is judgment on the world. Every time that you pray and ask the Lord for something, this is judgment on the world. Because if the Lord were to take just a random person from the random store down the street that doesn't know the Lord and takes you and says, okay, how did you go about your life? The Christian would answer, I asked you for help. And the other person would say, well, I tried to do it on my own. And the Lord would say, you are not designed for that. This is like a phone trying to function without a battery. It doesn't work. You can say, I'll plug it in. But still, the idea is it's not designed to function without power. And this is how the Lord has created us to function. So the wonder of wonders is that the word that the Lord, through prayer, accomplishes his purposes in the world. He shatters every principality and ruler in the heavenly places. He brings you out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And then he establishes you. He sets your feet on Christ the rock. So prayer is essential to the life. If you're not praying, then I would say either you are a very weak Christian or you're not one. We must pray. We must humble ourselves. And we must ask the Lord for help because we have been saved by the immeasurable greatness of his power. Let's pray.
Oh, Father, we thank you now, and we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Help us, we ask, to pray. This is not the easiest thing to do. So, Lord, help us to come to you in humility. Whatever was profitable, we pray that you would make that stick. Whatever was not profitable, blow it away, Lord. And we pray that your name would be glorified here in Comac and in everywhere that we go. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. Amen.